0: So First John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 together. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we Come now in these moments to sit under your word, and Lord, we ask uh, that you would speak and build up your church for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that has been revealed and made known to us, and as we consider it again this morning, this which has united us together as this body of believers, the banner of the gospel, that we would, um, Lord, come to know you more deeply and that we would leave changed this morning by the power of your word proclaimed and your spirit working in and through us in these moments. Lord, would you receive all of the glory and praise that you alone deserve. Help us in these moments, Lord, we pray. Guard us from distraction. Help us to set our attention and our affection on you, and we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. How, how do we live faithfully in a day of relativism where truth is whatever you want truth to be for yourself, uh, in, in a day where absolute truth or certain truth is something that is seen to be false or untrue? How do we live faithfully as Christ's church in a day that is full of false teaching? where I can tell from firsthand experience how uh, America is outsourcing false ch- teaching at a, um, a rate that is uh, staggering and impacting the, the church throughout the world. How do we live faithfully as Christians in a day of progressivism, where we're being told that things like gender are fluid and, and, and sexuality is ever-developing in our day? I think maybe a better question for us to ask this morning and consider as we come to the book of 1 John is how do we love our neighbor as Christ commands us to when so often our neighbors stand at odds with all that we believe. Not just about theology, but about things that are revealed to us in creation. Things that are general revelation to us from God. How do we love our neighbor well, in the days that we live in, the book of First John it will help us answer all of these questions because many of the issues that John faced in his day are similar to the issues that we face in ours. John, the writer of this letter, was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, and he would become one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, And he would, in fact, become a part of that tight-knit inner circle of the three of the disciples, Peter, his brother James, and himself. Uh, He would eventually become known as the Apostle of Love, and probably for a couple reasons. He was known as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Uh, But in his gospel, the Gospel of John, and in these three letters, there's a A heavy emphasis on love. And so he's known as the Apostle of Love, but he was originally known, along with his brother James, as one of the sons of thunder. He was very brash, very blunt. A good example of this is when Jesus and the disciples came into that Samaritan village that didn't receive Jesus. It was James and John who turned to Jesus and said, Lord, shall we call fire down from heaven to consume these people? I think this tells us a lot about John and will help us as we read through uh, this letter together and understand him. After Christ dies on the cross and resurrects and ascends into heaven, he was one of the leaders of the uh, church there in Jerusalem. But then he would spend the uh, last portion of his days, a major portion of his life in Ephesus, overseeing the churches in that reason. And if you're a student of the Word, you know that Uh, One day he would be banished to the island of Patmos out of persecution where he would have this revelation from the Lord that he would write out in the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And he, we believe, uh, was the only of the twelve disciples not to be martyred for the name of Christ. Uh, The book doesn't tell us much about it, but we believe that these three letters were probably written during his time in Ephesus, the latter part of his life. And in this time in the Roman Empire, syncretism and inclusivism were were on the rise. These two words just simply mean bringing lots of thoughts together as one. There was room for new religions in the day as long as those religions were inclusive. If your religion or your thought uh, was one that said we alone have the truth or this is the truth, it wasn't one that was desirable in the day. There was a desire to bring in thoughts and religions and ways of thinking, And, and one of the ways it manifested itself was in what we come to know as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was on the rise in John's day. We'll talk more about Gnosticism and what exactly this is as we walk through this book together. But one of the primary features of Gnosticism was that all of flesh was wicked and evil. And so Jesus, when he came to this earth, did not take on the form of a man because that would have meant that he would have been wicked and evil. So he was just a spirit being, which is obviously a false teaching, a heresy. And so, in this day, there was a worship of many false gods. There was paganism, and this would have especially been true in the region of Ephesus. This region was a a land bridge that would have connected Europe to Asia. And so, it was a melting pot of thought and religion in its day. And here, the church stood in the middle of all of this as light, a beacon of light, in the darkness... But the church was also threatened by the many growing beliefs in the culture and in thought in this day. And this sounds very much like the day in which we live in. And so John writes this letter to the church to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of the chaos, but also to be on guard. And he does several things throughout the letter, as we'll, we'll see here in the coming weeks, to really emphasize this. One of the things that he does is he, he puts a comparison into view of those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so as we walk through the letter, we'll see comparisons in words like this. Light and darkness, life and death, love of the Father, love of the world, children of God, and children of the devil. It's, if you were to call someone a child of the devil in our day, that would be seen as quite offensive. This is the language that John uses. Something else that John does, as we'll see here in the verses that we're, uh, we just read in verses 1-4 through 4 together, he emphasizes the incarnation, the importance that God became a man. God incarnate in flesh. He also emphasizes that Jesus alone is the means to eternal life. That there is no way to the Father but through Christ alone. One other thing that John emphasizes in in this letter, as we'll, we'll see in the coming weeks, is the transformative power of the gospel. That if you are in Christ, your life will be transformed. You will be sanctified. And so John is most certainly the apostle of love. In fact, I've titled this sermon series, What is Love? We're going to try to answer that question in the crazy world that we live in. How do we define love? How do we love God? How do we love our neighbor? What is true love according to the word of God? But make no mistake about it, John is most certainly a son of thunder. And the truth that he preaches from this letter is still a thunderous voice in the day in which we live in. The day in which we live is one of great suspicion of any type of conviction or certainty about what is true. And yet the Bible tells us that we can know truth. The Bible also tells us that we must pursue truth, and we know truth by the word of God, and we pursue truth by the word of God alone. And so, dear friend, it is not unloving or insensitive to speak what is true. And this is what John addresses in this first letter. It is good and right and necessary for us to submit ourselves to the truth of god's word and so as he opens this letter he he does not do so with a greeting or a welcome he gets right to the point and right away in these first four verses he wants us to see this there is truth that is certain and we can know it and the truth he says here is the word of life the word of the gospel but also the word made flesh christ Himself, So I want us to consider this morning this word of life that he speaks of here. There's several things here. First, the word of life is unchanging. We see this primarily in verse 1 when he says there that which was from the beginning. But we also see it in verse 2 when he says there also was with the Father. There is this eternal unchanging quality to the word of life. And John has in view here the gospel. The message of the word, the message of redemption, that is and has always been unchanging. The gospel never changes. The gospel has always been and will forever be the message of faith and repentance. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and be saved. Repent and turn from your sin and follow after Christ. But in this unchanging eternal quality of the word of life, John also has in view Christ himself. As we see in his gospel, John's gospel, chapter 1, that Jesus is the word made flesh. And Jesus has always and will forever be God. This might seem like a basic Sunday school truth for us this morning. But dear church, this truth is on attack, is under attack in our day. That Jesus is fully God. He is not merely a good man. He is not merely a good teacher or a good prophet. He is most certainly all of those things, but he is mostly God in flesh. He was there at creation, he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And this God that we worship each Lord's Day is the one true living God who has always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not one of many gods to add to our plate. This is also not a progression of God throughout the ages. There wasn't God the Father at one time who then became God the Son, who then became God the Spirit. This is a a type of, of, of taking the understanding of who God is and misunderstanding it. We call this modalism. This is just one of many examples of how people have mishandled the truth of who Christ is and who the Trinity is and who God is. This is one true God who has always imperfectly existed together as Father, Son, and Spirit. And hear this, anything that deviates from this unchanging truth is not the truth at all. Again, this is not popular to say in our day, and this truth is under attack, but it is the truth that we find here in the pages of Scripture, and we must hold firm to this. You've probably heard it said that religion is like a mountain, and God is at the top, and the religions of the world are the many paths that lead up the mountain to God, and there are many paths to God. Now, this might make sense practically if you're on a backpacking trip and trying to decide which path that gets to the top of the mountain. There are most assuredly many paths to the top of the mountain, but this is not true in how we come to know the living God of the universe. Church, there is one way to the Father, and it is through Christ and Christ alone. In his gospel, John quotes Jesus as saying in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Christ alone is the way to his salvation. And if you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible this morning, you do not have eternal life. This one who has been made manifest to us in the word of God, not a Jesus of your own fabrication, but this eternal God who became a man and lived a sinless life and died on a cross, making propitiation for our sins and rising from the grave, ascending to the Father and coming again. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you do not believe in this Jesus, hear me again, you do not have eternal life. Some will say this is a harsh truth. I don't think it's a harsh truth. I think it's a sobering truth. There's one way to the Father, and it is through Christ alone. And we must submit to it because it has been revealed to us, and it is unchanging. The second thing we see here about the word of life in the text is that the word of life has been revealed. You see it twice there. John uses the word manifest. And this word literally means to be revealed. In other words, this is a historical reality. God came to us in the form of a man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And this is why John puts such an emphasis on hearing and seeing. and, And he says we have touched him. Look there at the text, it says we have heard him. This, this is that they heard him audibly speak. And John, as a, as a firsthand witness as a disciple, heard Jesus teach in parables. And he heard him rebuke the Sadducees and the Pharisees with his own ears. He says there, we have seen him with our eyes. He could have just said we've seen him, but he emphasizes the truth of the incarnation by saying we've seen him with our own eyes. We have looked upon him. He does the same thing there where he says we have touched him with our hands. He was there and saw Messiah performing the miracles and raising the dead to life. He saw his resurrected body and touched him. He is a firsthand witness to these things. And so this makes sense why in his gospel he begins his, his, his gospel there in John chapter 1 by saying the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen him. God came near to us. He's been revealed. And the reason that John emphasizes this is is important for two reasons. First of all, it had to be this way. God had to be made low in order to save us from our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says as much. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in order to bring about propitiation for sins. It had to be this way. But it's also true, (laughs) And John wants to emphasize this in light of the growing uh, belief system of Gnosticism in his day. I, I mentioned Gnosticism at the beginning and, and how they believed that all of flesh was wicked and evil. And so Jesus did not, in fact, become a man. He was just a spirit being. And this is, uh, this is a very troubling view to have of the reality of what John is talking about here. And so he emphasizes these things as a counter-offense to the message of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism in his day had not uh, come to its full uh, being. It's still in its, its, its early infant stages here. It's growing, but John has enough uh, of a grasp of what is true to realize that there's something that is coming up that is anti-gospel that would become known as Gnosticism. He, he sees that this threat is growing, and it's, it's subtle. And so we we have this thing called the rule of the angle. If you're you're cutting a piece of fabric and you have the desired line that you want to cut that fabric on, if you're just off a little bit at the beginning of the cut, it it might not matter and, and be as important early on, but the longer you get down the fabric and the further along you cut, the further away from the truth that you get. See, false teaching that John is warning the church against is subtle. It doesn't just come on the scene. It begins with people saying, we believe in the Jesus of the Bible. There's this slow progression, this slow fade, little by little, and we must be on guard. Pastors and theologians in our day who who call out these subtle shifts are seen as as mean and cruel, but we must be on guard in these slow fades and the things of doctrine and, and theology and belief. We must get the essentials of the gospel right as of the church. These these primary things, these first-level things in the life of the church. But when it comes to secondary, tertiary things, we also must make sure in these tertiary issues that we do not lose sight of the essentials. That in all that we believe in practice and in faith, that we are rooted and grounded and submitting to the word of God alone because it has been revealed to us, friends. And it is true. Thirdly, the word of life provides eternal life. As we've already mentioned this morning, the only way to eternal life is through the God man, Jesus. It is through the gospel alone. And notice here that the gospel is something to be proclaimed. There is something specific about Jesus and about the message of the gospel that is to be said. Notice there twice he uses the word proclaim. This is a word that he uses throughout the letter. There is something to be said Not something to keep to ourselves. There is a message of hope, the good news of the gospel, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. And proclamation is key to this. John, in writing this letter, is bearing witness to Messiah, to the gospel. There in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples, You will be my witnesses. And John is doing that very thing. He is proclaiming the hope of heaven, the gospel. John could have very well just kept this to himself out of pride. And this is what, would have been what the Gnostics would have done. They, they saw their, 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 their knowledge as a new and special knowledge. And, and if they had it and nobody else did, they kind of kept it to themselves out of a sense of arrogance and pride. I have this knowledge and, and you don't know. The gospel, friends, is something to be heralded and proclaimed to the ends of the earth something that Christ commands us to speak of. One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is found there in Acts chapter 4 where uh, some persecution begins to rise there in the early church. And what is the early church's response to it? They go to the Lord in prayer. And they gather together and they pray this one specific thing. They say, Lord, help us to speak the word with boldness and what happens there the house the place in which they're meeting begins to shake and what do they do they go out and they do the very thing in which they prayed for they speak the word with boldness and people are saved hear this friend if people are to be saved from their sin if they are to find eternal life we must speak the words of life there's a quote That's believed to be attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Dear friend, it is always necessary to use words in the preaching of the gospel. We must herald the words of life to a lost and dying world because it is the words of eternal life. Fourthly here, we see the word of life offers fellowship, not just fellowship with one another, but fellowship with God. The word fellowship that he uses a couple times here in the passage, and again uses throughout this letter, is that Greek word that we know of koinonia, a mutual participation in a a common work or a common life. And he wants them to see the fellowship they have with one another and the fellowship they have with God is true. He highlights here the fellowship that they have with one another. This is one of the main reasons that he writes the letter to them, is to show them the reality of the bond that they have together in Christ. Fellowship is not just something that he's promoting to them as a good idea, Y'all get together every once in a while. Y'all should you should pursue this fellowship thing. No, fellowship is a reality for the church. It is reality for us as brothers and sisters in Christ that we are bound together this morning in the gospel, in one spirit. What binds us in this place this morning and what allows us to fellowship together is not our common interest in sports teams and politics, but it is a common truth that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Fellowship is a reality for us today. And the threat is that this fellowship will be broken by false doctrine and worldliness, that we would lose sight of these things. But probably most importantly here, he wants them to see that they have a fellowship with God. This again is another reason why he has written this letter is because he wants them to have confidence in their salvation. He wants them to know that if they are in Christ, it is true and sure. We'll go and see this several times as we walk through this letter together. But first, John chapter five verse thirteen is really the the heart of the book. The main reason that John is writing this is found there in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Fellowship with God is a reality for the believer, not a proposition that can be lost. And he wants to stimulate in them an assurance, a certainty of their faith and fellowship, their relationship with God. There are days where you might not feel like you have fellowship with God. But fellowship with God is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is a true certainty for those who are in Christ. And so both fellowship with God and fellowship with each other that he emphasizes here are cultivated in the confines of the local fellowship, the local church I must admit, one of the things that I I struggle with in pastoring again in an American context after our family spent uh, seven years in in Asia, one of the things I I struggle with is is just some of the issues that we face that are kind of unique to us as the American church. I'll just say this, the the church in Asia uh, and the persecuted church around the world is not splitting over carpet colors. They have things that are happening around them that, that, that are far more significant. And they, and they see this and they know this. And, and what's interesting about the persecuted church around the world is, is that the, the marker of health for that church is not so much numbers and buildings as, as really it shouldn't ever be. But the mark of health for the persecuted church is how dependent they are on Christ and each other. Because they are all that they have in the midst of the persecution. And so we need to understand, as we grow in Christ, we are not becoming more independent. Again, this is something that Gnosticism taught. The more you grow in your secret knowledge, the more puffed up you are. No, if you're growing in Christ, you are becoming more dependent on him and the people that make up this local church. This is something we need to come to understand and to cherish. This is why it's so important in the the confines of this covenant community that we pursue peace with one another, that we are patient with one another and show grace to one another as we pursue this common goal to make much of Christ in San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. And so my challenge to you this morning is to covenant with a local church and grow in fellowship with them join a local church and if you're here this morning and you're looking for a church and it's not this church dear friend please find a church and join it covenant together promise together with a local body of believers to be about the same thing making much of Christ in this life and don't just join the church but do life with that church there are, there are lots of opportunities that we have in our church any given week to be together in Bible study and fellowship. We have our, our Sunday school hour at 9:30s on Sunday. We have a couple of home groups that meet during the week and we're looking to expand that a little bit in the coming year. We have several Bible studies, ladies Bible studies, youth Bible studies that meet up here during the week. We have people who are doing Bible studies and fellowships and, uh, around the city throughout the week. Find a place in the life of this church to connect with people and do life together with them. Life that's rooted and grounded in the Word. But then also give up your time and your energy and your your giftings that the Lord has blessed you with to the sake of the church. And again, if it's not this church, do it somewhere. At some church, serve the body of Christ with your talents. To His glory. Our church is always looking for people to serve on our teams. There are opportunities in this place to serve the body of Christ to the glory of Christ. So join a church, do life in the church, and give of yourself to serving the bride of Christ. Finally, the last thing that we see here in the text is that the word of life gives joy. primarily see this there in verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I love the New Testament writers. They help you out a lot and tell you the reasons they're writing these things. In the Old Testament narrative, you kind of have to go and find what the meaning is. He tells us right here here's a reason I'm writing to you, church, so that your joy may be complete. That word our there is collectively, all together, that our joy may be complete. And we think to ourselves, that sounds a little strange. What does that mean? Is there joy lacking? What does it mean to complete? Your joy. Well, it helps us here to go to John's gospel because John helps us there in, in, in John chapter 15 verse 11, when he says, he quotes Jesus saying this, Jesus said in John 15:11, "These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Fool. And that word fool that he uses in, in his gospel is the same word that's used here for complete. And so John here, in a sense, is exegeting the teachings of Jesus. He's just expounding on something that Jesus taught him, that our joy is to be full in Christ. We, we don't want a little bit of joy, do we? we? We don't want our cup to be half full of joy. No, we want the full measure of joy that God has for us. And this fullness of joy comes from knowing Christ and growing in a knowledge of who he is. And so just as with fellowship, as we grow in Christ, we learn to be more dependent on each other. As we grow in Christ, we also learn to grow in our joy. And so it's not so much about maintaining a full cup that John is talking about here as it is consistency of joy in our life. Are, are you living your days full of joy as I'm preparing the sermon this week and I'm considering verse 4, something struck me that I had not planned and it was not in any type of preaching strategy that I had. But just something that the Lord has clearly been teaching us as a church over the last several weeks and that, that we need to be full of joy, church. Just think of where we've been In the last month or so, think back to Mary and Elizabeth and their interaction. What did Elizabeth say to Mary? Blessed are you among women. Full of joy are you because God has shown you favor. And then Mary in her song says, what my soul magnifies the Lord. And we talked about how her soul had this deep-rooted sense of joy that was welling up inside of her. And then consider where we were last week in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Full of joy is the righteous. And I I came to see here that God is wanting us to see, in recent weeks, as we just faithfully walk through his word, the deep-rooted joy that comes by knowing him. But also the importance, consistency in his word plays into that as this is the year of the word and we're looking to read the word and memorize the word together that when we are intentionally and purposely in the word of God guess what our joy will be full I've mentioned before the the pictures of the Tesla on the side of the road being charged by a gas powered generator and how ironic that is and I don't have a dog in this fight electric gas powered I really don't care but the electric powered car advocates have been posting their pictures online of a ford model t a black and white picture of a ford model t back in the day stuck in the mud and it's being pulled out of the mud by what a horse again wherever you stand on this debate of electric gas powered the truth is the same whether you drive an electric powered car or a gas powered car the longer you are away from the source of power the less full your tank becomes last week psalm one planted by streams of what water the righteous man is full of joy. Why? Because he is near to the source of life. There's a constant flow of life to him, and that stream of water is the word of God. The closer we stay to the word of life, the source of life, the more consistent we will be in our joy. I love what R.C. Sproul had to say about this in regard to what Jesus said in John's Gospel, that your joy may be full. He, he had a way of explaining things so well. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this, this reality of our joy being consistent. He says, No one who is listening to me right now has ever, yet, in his or her life, fully experienced the highest level of joy that is available to the people of God. In other words, we will not experience the full measure of joy this side of heaven. He says, the question, rather, that is being presented to us here is how constant is your joy? So he goes on to say, do you feel like it's a roller coaster ride? I often do. And one of the things that disturbs me is how I can be inconsistent. And I know that we all struggle with that sort of thing. But Jesus gives a simple explanation for that. When we are inconsistent in our walk with him in our quest for intimacy with him, then the fruit that we bear will likewise be inconsistent. But if we want a constancy and a fullness of the measure of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then we know what to do. Since he is the source of peace, of joy, of love, of faith, indeed of all the fruit of the Spirit, then the closer we stay to the vine, the stronger and more productive the fruit of the vine is in our lives. Dear friend, how close are you staying to the vine? Are you abiding in Christ and his word? Be in his word. As the psalmist said, delight in the word and meditate on the word day and night. And you will see your joy overflowing. So I began this morning with a question that we'll ask throughout this sermon series in the coming days. How do we love our neighbor well in the chaos of the world in which we live in? John will begin to answer this question more and more in the coming weeks, but he begins the letter with this simple truth, cling to the word of life. It is certain, it is true It is all that you need as we begin this journey together in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we ask this question, how do we love a lost and dying world? Begin there, church, cling to the word of life. Let's pray.